Thanks very much, Carolyn. And, and can I also renew my thanks to Andrew and Alex and everyone involved in these two days, which have been incredibly stimulating. My talk is really a series of reflections. It stems, it has three main roots in terms of what made me want to talk about the Australian-American alliance in historical perspective. Um, of course, Trump is the, the trigger, and I'll, I'll mention that, but it stems from um, a period of some of the earliest research I undertook as a PhD student and, and post-PhD. It stems partly from a recent book that I uh, led and uh, co-authored with a number of colleagues, which was basically a history of Australia's embassy in Washington and which was accompanied by a very informative witness seminar. We've heard references to the value of witness seminars in the previous session. And I suppose the third arm to this is my frequent, the frequency of my travel to Canberra and watching the changes in Canberra and the community of Canberra. The basic message I have is, is, is around the clumsiness and often the absence of historical perspective in Australian-US relations. But at the same time, and this is what makes it so problematic, the persistence of the high importance that Australians attach to the relationship. And when I say Australians, I'm talking about both the elite level and also at the popular level. In annual surveys that are conducted, the most recent one has um, Australian public saying that around 80% of Australians approve of the American alliance, um, either strongly or very strongly. It gets a bit more problematic when you then ask them, well, you know, is it worth um, going to war with China over it? Because around 80% say no. But, um, you know, that's, that's typical of these kind of um, opinion polls. And so the, in terms of the other prompt for wanting to talk about this was, of course, the arrival of Donald Trump and the sense of disruption that uh, arose around his arrival. In particular, in Australia, there were two things which prompted a sense of <coughs> crisis, which is our, our, our theme. Um, one was the phone call between Malcolm Turnbull on screen um, with Trump around the refugee, refugees deal. Uh, so there's you know, deliberate continuity. I don't know how I did that, class, but deliberate continuity with the, the previous speaker. The refugees deal that Obama concluded um, with, with Australians that Trump described as the worst deal ever and, and, and wanted to repudiate. And of course, very soon afterwards, the Australians were um, thrown into great uh, fear of uh, ANZUS being invoked in relation to the so-called fire and fury that might pour down upon North Korea in August 2017. At the time, I hoped, and like many others also hoped, um, that some, we might see something of a lifting of the lid on this, this sense of elite and popular consensus around the importance of the American alliance. And just for a moment, it did lift, but only slightly and only momentarily, when Labor Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs Penny Wong dared to suggest something of a thorough review of the alliance, she was quickly pulled into line. And the alliance resumed its prominence, perhaps not free of questions, but certainly not inviting of a thorough review. So what I'm suggesting basically in this very brief talk is that historians have largely vacated the field in informing Australian public conversations around the alliance with a number of consequences. First, one consequence is the successful conflation of the alliance with ANZUS, the security treaty, by Australian leaders, and misconceptions about the operation and the history of the ANZUS treaty. Secondly, is the persistence of World War II-related narratives, especially in the hands of Americans. Thirdly, is the monopolisation of the alliance story by Australian prime ministers in particular, for whom it constitutes legitimacy, 
And the absence of the corollary, of course, is the absence of political scrutiny by oppositions to this prime ministerial rhetoric, especially in Australia since the 1980s. And fourthly is that other point I mentioned, the growth of a Canberra security community linked closely to government, but not terribly closely to the public. So a quick, um, quick reminder about the, I've mentioned how central ANZUS is um, in, in my introductory remarks. A quick reminder for us in terms of what that crucial clause is, it's, it's not NATO, it's not the attack on one is the attack on all formula. Um, but it's a, a rather uh, a woolly each party recognising that an armed attack in the, in the Pacific area on any of the others um, is dangerous and declares that it will act to meet the common danger in accordance with constitutional processes. The wooliness of that has, has always created problems. ANZUS has been rolled out, um, and I'll get back to some of those problems in a minute. ANZUS has been rolled out um, in ways that always suggest a greater deal of commitment and a greater deal of solidity than that clause, in fact, suggests. In addition to ANZUS, though, as I mentioned, um, certain spokespeople, in particular American ambassadors, uh, and I've been to several talks throughout the years in Australia, have tended to dwell on ANZUS and then especially the Second World War experience as the ties that bind the two nations together. And the Second World War was an incredible phenomenon in terms of what, what it produced. There was a, a roughly one million Americans passed through Australia during the period of the Second World War when the Australian population was less than eight million. So that's, that's a pretty profound um, experience. And, uh, and it has this ongoing legacy of the sons and daughters of servicemen who passed through, remember their fathers talking and so on and so on. In addition, we've also got um, recourse, and this comes from both American ambassadors and Australian leaders, to other great moments of the word mateship has crept in a lot in the last couple of years, and that's why I've, I've used the word mateship. Um, in particular, this year we had the um, 100th anniversary of the, um, sorry, not the 100th, the 110th anniversary of the Great White Fleet um, anniversary of 1908 when Teddy Roosevelt um, had his 16 battleships sailing around the world, they visited Australia and that was much celebrated in Australia. And we've had that 1942 moment, the arrival of um, Douglas MacArthur and those who'd been kicked out of the Philippines. And of course the 1951 anniversary is sometimes celebrated, that's the ANZUS Treaty in 1951. These things have been repeatedly and easily referenced and very loosely referenced, as I see it, in terms of how they are described in the quick one or two lines accompanying them, by public defenders of the US-Australian relationship, especially in the wake of the arrival of Trump. We've seen um, a great recourse to these. If there have been defensive responses, um, when this sense of alarm has arisen, and particularly in relation to the prospect of war with North Korea, they've tended to um, turn on, on two main arguments. One is that the alliance is much bigger than the President of the United States, and the second, that the alliance these days facilitates a package of benefits rather than a simple security treaty. I'm talking about ANZUS becoming an umbrella, if you like, and pointing to things that have flowed, benefits um, such as a free trade agreement and other things that have flowed in more recent times, supposedly because of this umbrella of goodwill. Um, I deliberately have a couple of um, images because these are the kind of things you see rolled out again in, in, in very public forums, whether it's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia or from American sources. The, the, the one on, on your left is, of course, um, a scene from the Second World War, and the one on the right is a shaking of hands between President Eisenhower, 
Percy Spender, John Foster Dulles and Menzies in 1953. Um, incidentally, in 1954, um, when, about roughly almost exactly one year after that, that photo was taken, uh, just this, and this is explicitly an attempt to draw a link to the earlier paper on statues and the importance of statues. 1954 was the year in which the US Australian Memorial was erected in Canberra, which is this wonderful kind of phalanx-like thing with a huge eagle at the top. If you've, if you've been to Canberra, you'll see, you'll recall how tall it is, um, which also makes it the butt of jokes as well. Um, and there was great anxiety in Australia at the time because it was erected just in advance of the Royal Tour of Australia, which Australians know was bigger than Ben-Hur. It's estimated that three quarters of all Australians saw the Queen at least once. And I've never seen such delight in any British official document I've ever read of the, the report by the British High Commissioner who had to attend the unveiling of this US-Australian memorial when the entire press stand collapsed um, at, at, at the unveiling of the memorial. So um, that has a, in terms of the temporal significance that we were reminded of before, there's, there's that to add to it. For time reasons, I have to give you a very potted history of ANZUS, just, just to make a few points, building on my opening remarks. In very broad brush terms, the motivation um, for the conclusion of the ANZUS Security Treaty in 1951 on the American side was, of course, just to extend the perimeter of the Pacific in the Cold War in the wake of the Korean War. From the Australian point of view, it, it, I would identify three reasons. Firstly, was to secure a guarantee of security in the Pacific, they hoped. Secondly, was to um, assuage their long-standing fears of Japan, especially in light of recent events. And thirdly, to enable Australians to play uh, their normal role in world wars, which was to jump in boats and um, on, on expeditionary force and fight somewhere else in the world. Um, in 1951, Australians' uh, cabinet agreed in December 1951 that in the event of another world war, which they thought was a real prospect, they would again commit to sending their first contingent of troops to the Middle East. Many people don't, don't realise this. So ANZUS um, delighted British officials at the time um, because it was the back door being bolted and it made Australians more likely to jump in those boats again and sail to the Middle East. The only person who wasn't delighted was Churchill, who back in power in 1952, being briefed on all of this on a memorandum, um, when, when he was being briefed on the Australian motivations behind conclusion of the ANZUS Treaty, he wrote in one of those marvellous marginal notes you can sometimes see in the files, Poor stock was his comment about the Australian behaviour. Okay, I mentioned um, the study of the Australian um, Embassy in Washington, and that's instructive for, for what it shows over time. Basically, successive Australian ambassadors in Washington tried unsuccessfully to put meat on the bones of ANZUS. That was a phrase of Percy Spender in the previous photo, or the O in NATO, if you want another way of putting it. They failed. Um, Neither ANZUS nor the other, the other treaty organisations, CETO in 1954, provided the kind of guarantee, the kind of sense of confidence that an attack would produce an American response, attack in the Pacific would produce the American response, and neither treaty provided any confidence that the Australians would be let into American strategic thinking at the highest levels, which is what they wanted. So you find um, rather bizarre episodes like the Australians' willingness to commit to the crisis developing in Laos in 1959. Um, it evaporated before they had to make that commitment, but such was their eagerness to show that they um, would be willing to invest in something in order to trigger a lack of, uh, to, to trigger an American response, that they were becoming preemptive. Um, South Vietnam, uh, 1961, they sent a training team. 
those, and I'm summarising very hastily here, those historians who've written about Australia's involvement in Vietnam have really come to a consensus that far from the idea that ANZUS was acting as an insurance policy on which we paid premiums, it was basically the Australians um, trying to be proactive, to not be dragged into Vietnam by the, the Americans asking them to be, but to nudge the Americans into Vietnam, if at all possible, so that they would stay somewhere in Southeast Asia and therefore be able to come to our assistance um, if somewhere else blew up. But that somewhere else was most, most likely to be Indonesia, of course. Um, most of the Australian commitment in thinking around Vietnam, of course, took shape in relation to Confrontasi first and then very quickly switched. Again, not many Australians realised that the National Service Program, which took Australians to Vietnam, was actually devised for um, a response to Confrontasi before it all was um, resolved very, very quickly in 1965-66. Nor did the Australians ever get a, a, any support from the Americans over West New Guinea, um, which they hoped would remain either in Dutch hands or, or at one stage the Australians actually tried to buy West New Guinea. They, they, they were so, so desperate they actually um, asked the Dutch if they might be willing to sell it. So this sense of um, anxiety around the, the northern part of Australia was in no way resolved by ANZUS, is my main message here. The other crises that I'll mention very, very quickly is, of course, the New Zealand exit from ANZUS. Um, so New Zealand protests the, um, the transition and um, visiting of nuclear ships, um, nuclear-powered or nuclear-armed ships in the mid-1980s, which prompts their exit from ANZUS. That provided a lot of soul-searching in Australia, but paradoxically, it also produced a doubling down on the value of the alliance, an attempt to both maintain a good friendship with the New Zealanders, but a doubling down in, in the sense that the, if the alliance was to persist, the Australians had to renew their commitment to it, so, even though it was, as I'm suggesting, very devoid of certainty. If there was any, if there was any soft kind of um, dimension to Australians reassuring themselves through all of these attempts to nail down a stronger sense of American committedness, then it was probably the sense that somehow ANZUS, by virtue of being a security treaty, might enable a US president to act without congressional approval. That was about the only thing, that was the only solace they could take from, from this. There was never any um, promise to uh, come to Australia's rescue if Confrontasi had blown into bigger things and the Indonesians had gone into um, Malaysia in a, in a more substantive way. There was, nor was there any American involvement in East Timor in 1999 in the, the crisis in East Timor, uh, which the Australians intervened in. There was no commitment of US troops. In the end, after special pleading, they did manage to get um, over, the horizon, over the horizon intelligence support and so on. So forgive the, the rather breathless rush through ANZUS, but that's the, I'm just trying to reinforce the point that um, ANZUS this certainly doesn't constitute the insurance policy metaphor that it's some, sometimes described as. In terms of the, um, the Prime Ministers and the security community, again, in very, very brief terms, ever since Robert Menzies described alliances with Britain and the United States in the 1950s as our great and powerful friends, it's become important for subsequent Prime Ministers to confirm their authority and legitimacy through similar declarations. And in particular, as James Curran has argued in a, a very interesting book called The Art of Speech, since the 1970s, Prime Ministers have had to shore up their, their authority in the party room 
through particular discourse and a particular kind of narrative around telling the story of the Australian nation which locates it in the world. And that, in the case of all Prime Ministers since the 1970s in particular, has always had a prominent place for the, for the Americans. So there's a Prime Ministerial appropriation, if you like, of the American alliance that has grown in particular since the 1970s. And I can talk a bit more about that if, if need be. What's also occurred is the, the lack of um, political opposition. Up until the 1980s, the Labor Party was far more searching, far more questioning, about the parameters of the alliance, but since partly since, due to that New Zealand moment that I mentioned, but partly also to the particular um, prime ministership of Bob Hawke in the 1980s, the Labor Party um, has really gone on a bipartisan path for celebration of the American alliance. And um, if you like, something of a deal was done, something of the left's conscience was assuaged by the creation of the South Pacific nuclear free zone, which Australia played a lead role in in the 1980s, and that was. Some, something of a sop to the left in the Labor Party. In 2011, most memorably, of course, the only time the ANZUS Treaty has been invoked, it was, of course, the Australians rushing to help the Americans, paradoxically. Um, this was in the wake of 2011. John Howard was in the United States um, on 9-11, um, and uh, in the wake of that experience, invoked ANZUS in advance of sending Australian troops very quickly um, to Afghanistan and then uh, and soon afterwards to Iraq. On the growth of the, the Canberra security community, especially since the 1990s, um, whether we're talking about the Australian National University um, or a number of think tanks that have grown up, we just need to note that there has grown a greater capacity for um, defence analysts to have a, a voice among elites and, and to have a voice amongst political elites in Canberra. In other words, I'm suggesting that Canberra since the 1990s, certainly under my observation and mixing with both government and academe, Canberra has developed into something that is akin to a security community. And it's, it's quite instructive that um, there's a University of Sydney advertisement I saw recently. It's, it's a, particular, a particular type of masters in law you can study that promises to enhance your prospect for entering the Australian national security community. This was a phrase that I, that's only, only grown up quite recently and evokes you know, the United States in the early 1950s. But it's a, it's a terminology that's crept in in recent times. So the idea of a national security community has grown up in a way that has, um, I think, corralled debate in particular ways and also corralled it in with a particular community. In other words, those who are able to talk about the alliance have become fewer in number and have credentials that are meant to be security-related credentials rather than non-security um, outsiders commenting. Again, very quickly, Australia's first defence um, white paper emerged in 1976. Since then, I think there have been another five. But it's also quite instructive to note how ANZUS and the American Alliance has been written in to the Australian story in the form of defence white papers. Um, we've, been at, we've been getting better at producing more white papers as we go, and um, the way in which the Alliance has been inscribed in these is quite um, formidable. The 2016 white paper I, I mentioned there mentioned its support for a so-called rules-based global order, and that was used 48 times. And finally, um, 
In terms of those who would make the strongest case, and again, this is very much the security community, those who aren't like me, because I don't have any expertise in this, they would say you're not qualified to question the Alliance because you simply don't know how valuable it's been in terms of our intelligence, technology, logistics, expertise, research and development, sharing and so on. Um, and it's a, good, it's a good point because much of the information about this is indeed secret. But if we take what we know about the best evidence from um, installations that were built in the 1960s and since the 1980s became joint installations, such as Pine Gap in outside Alice Springs, the best, the best work that's been done um, on Pine Gap by um, the late Des Ball and, and Richard Tanter suggests that even if you take a steely-eyed view of this in terms of the cost benefits of um, having in Australia installations that will monitor for nuclear testing, uh, provide communications links to US submarines, it changes, it's not static. Sometimes you could see a, a benefit, but as time goes on, things can change. And they would, they've asked very serious questions. Richard Tanter has asked very serious questions. Is it worth our while to have these things in supporting uh, drone operations and interventions in Yemen and Somalia and Pakistan in this vein? Interestingly, Tanter um, wasn't helped so much by WikiLeaks, but by the LinkedIn profiles of some of the people who work there. So that's a, another piece of data. Okay, very, very quick um, summary. Um, it's not the case that nothing has been written about US-Australian relations, but it is the case that the historical profession has changed and the study of a bilateral relationship has become less attractive for many historians. It's not the case that there's been no criticism, but it has been pushed primarily, the criticism has been pushed primarily to the margins of public debate and to the margins of political debate. Those who occupy it are a rather special security elite. It's not the case that others haven't jolted Australians before. I'm thinking of Hugh White about eight years ago who wrote about the challenge of China in particular and how that should force Australians to think twice. So the arrival of Trump does provide a rare moment of rupture, brief rupture, in what has otherwise been too much consensus among Australian commentators um, and politicians. Um, but those few who have offered the most thoughtful responses are those such as Nick Bisley who are historically literate and argue that it can actually be liberating to develop policies for a multipolar world in which thoughtful relationship building and energetic engagement with the dynamic region will more logically follow.